Hi there, my name is Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 2, Episode 6 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. In this episode, we were joined by Italian football author Jonathan Grade. Jonathan was a producer on the iconic Football Italia programme which brought joy and memories to so many viewers across the UK in the 1990s and early 2000s. Jonathan joined us for a nostalgic look back at one of the finest eras in footballing history. We spoke about the iconic teams, the iconic kits, the iconic players, and there were plenty of Gaza stories as well to go around. So do keep listening for all of that. We also had time to dissect Real Sociedad's one-all draw with Villarreal last Sunday night in La Liga and the consequences of that result for the title race in Spain. We then turned our attention to Portugal and assessed Sporting Lisbon's revival under Ruben Amorim. Amorim is of course one of the brightest up-and-coming young coaches in Europe, so it was interesting to hear from Michael on the progress that he has managed to achieve with the Lisbon side. We didn't quite have time to look in detail at German football and French football, but I am preparing a feature on Nico Kovac, on his failures ultimately at Bayern Munich and on his early relative success at Monaco. So do keep an eye out for that one when it drops in our next episode in two weeks' time. As always, this episode is produced in partnership with Freelance Football Opportunities. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. I will now let the episode itself take centre stage. Hopefully you enjoy it. Hopefully you learn a thing or two, or perhaps even three. Thanks again for all of your support. Enjoy. Rudy Barlow and Michael Jones have joined me for another episode of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. Barlow has managed to source a headset for this week, you'll all be pleased to know, so he won't sound like he's tuning in from Mars this week. And Michael has... Have you had a haircut, Michael? You're looking as if you've had a haircut or has it just slicked back a little bit more than usual? How are you, Michael Jones? I'll start with you. Good, thanks. I think it's just the moustache going, actually, and yeah, the hair being quite slicked back, but... Rudy Barlow, how are you doing? You've grown a beard since last time out, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I think this is just, um, it's not November related. I wish I was um, that moral person, but no, it's just um, laziness. I think looking forward to a bit of downtime over Christmas because it's a busy period at the minute for the next three, four weeks. Christmas is going to be time to relax amongst all the midweek fixtures, Champions League and whatnot. Absolutely, Barlow. You'll be delighted to give your little typing fingers a rest from La Liga Lowdown duties if just for a few days. We also have a very special guest this evening. We are joined by producer and Italian football author Jonathan Grade. Jonathan worked on the iconic Football Italia television production, which brought Italian football and joy to a huge UK audience in the 1990s and early 2000s. 
So we're going to look back on that wonderful period with Jonathan and hopefully rekindle some fond memories for you, the listener. And for our more junior listeners, I suppose, the hope is that we will be able to shed some light on Syria in the 90s and why it was and still is so highly regarded. Thank you for joining us this evening, Jonathan, and thank you also for sending me a copy of your new book, Golazzo, The Football Italia Years. For the benefit of our listeners, I would probably describe the book as an enjoyable recollection of an iconic period in Italian football's history, peppered with some brilliant behind-the-scenes stories from your time working on the Football Italia programme. Would you like to tell us a bit more about the book, where people can buy it, and if they aren't already convinced, why they should buy it? Yes, good evening, Alistair. Really, really lovely to be on, on this evening. Yes, yeah, so the book is, I'll get the details out of the way of where you can find it. It's on Amazon, nine ninety nine on the Kindle store, seven ninety nine. Perfect Christmas present. And yeah, so the book, basically the whole idea of the book started when I went very sadly to Peter Brackley's funeral a couple of years ago, and I thought, you know what, it sort of disappeared from the screens and no one really sort of wrapped the whole time up because it was an iconic time. And in the book, I've sort of tried to get across what you said, some of the stories from behind the scenes and sort of look back, because when you look back through this time, it's, it's a remarkable time in Italian football history. It's just the names that, that were playing in the league back then are just legends of the game and not just Italians but international everyone that came to Italy were the best in the world from overseas they all wanted to play in Italy it all it started with the famous Dutch trio at um, Milan with Hullet, Rijkaard van Basten Inter just had before then their German trio of um, Matthias, Bremer and Klinsmann and it just it just got stronger and stronger we sort of often hear it said in the 1990s, Serie A was the best league in the world. And some would perhaps even today use that period in Italian football as the gold standard when looking at the quality of any given domestic league. With the Gabriel Batistutas, the Beppe Signores, the Roberto Baggio's, Franco Baresi's, and you mentioned some names to yourself there, Hullets and Van Bassens and the like. It's easy to see why, but for you personally, what was it that made Serie A the best league in the world at that time? When we went on the air in 92, there was definitely a, a perception amongst the British public that Serie A and Italian football was dull and negative, whatever. And our first game was Sampdoria-Lazio, which was 3 all, and it was a, just an amazing game. And it, it all kicked off from there. And I think the fact you had players like Battistuta, Signori, you had Zola, you had Mancini, you had players like Aspria, you had Viali, you had Badger, Del Piero, you had Shevchenko, you had Ronaldo. I mean, the names, legends of the game, absolute legends, and they all wanted to play there. And I think what helped us in a way was all these attacking players that were the best in the world came to Italy. And that meant that the league wasn't flat, it wasn't dull. All these players wanted to play there. The goals were just, the goal ratio in these games was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Some incredible games we showed. Just to follow up on that question, Jonathan, Italy, of course, hosted the World Cup in 1990. And for many, it was a particularly memorable tournament. There was Roberto Baggio's mesmeric run and finish against Czechoslovakia in front of over. 70,000 at the Stadio Olimpico in Rome. 
the redemption of West Germany after two World Cups worth of pain and suffering, Cameroon controversially defeating the holders Argentina in the opening game, and, of course, how could we forget Gaza's tears? But what sort of impact did hosting that tournament have on the country and Italian football generally in the years that would follow, in your opinion? I think um, Italian 90 transformed Italian football because not only did they have the world's best players, the infrastructure changed immeasurably. You look, you talk about these, um, these places in Italy, the stadiums in Italy, and the, the stadiums built for this, for this show, the football show was um, incredible. Uh, Stadio Olimpico was rebuilt, San Siro was rebuilt, um, the Stadium of Genoa, Luigi Ferraris was as well. In Turin, they built this Stadio degli Alpi, which was didn't turn out to be the greatest success, but back then it was it, it hosted the semi between England and Germany that year, and it was a monstrous dome. And then you had even further south, you had Bari in the far south having the San Nicola Stadium built from from nothing, and it was held sixty thousand, and it it created the perception that. It was the glitzy league in the world. We had the best players and we now have the best stadiums. And back then in England, for example, all these um, stadiums were being, parts of them were closed because they were, apart the Taylor Report, there was no terracing anymore permitted. So while these English stadiums were being renovated, you had in Italy these brand spanking new huge stadiums and it, it fitted the image of Italian football at, at the pinnacle of world football. I guess they created the home for some of the great Italian sides of the 90s. And when I'm thinking of them, I think it's hard to ignore the Champions League winning teams of AC Milan and Juventus. Milan had won the UEFA Cup, Lazio and Sampdoria had won the UEFA Cup. Winners' Cup and Parma had won both of them during that decade. Beyond those sides, are there potentially overlooked clubs from that era you would consider worthy of an honourable mention? I'm thinking about this, actually. And... I think Roma had that famous Balbo and Fonseca front two that were an absolute goal-scoring machine and their, their partnership was legendary. And for several years, they were together and they were scored goals after goals. And, and, but there were other teams that I think people might forget about that are definitely worth talking about who achieved things against the odds. Udinese came up from Serie B in 95 and within a few years, they... They qualified for European competition for the first time, I think it was. They had Alberto Zaccaroni as their coach. Oliver Bierhoff was a big man up front, and they would go on to win the title with Milan in 99. And the other team I wanted to sort of talk about was Vicenza, who came up from the second division, and first time in 30 years. No one really knew anything about them. And they proceeded to win the Italian Cup and followed that up by getting to the semis of the Cup Winners' Cup, and they lost to Chelsea the following season. And there were, there were lots of stories of these clubs coming under the radar and, and performing way above expectations. Obviously, the, the loss to Maradona is one that rocked the footballing world to its core last week, and it would be remiss of us if we didn't touch on that. His life has obviously been analysed from every angle over the last week or so. You yourself began covering Italian football shortly after his departure from Napoli, speaking about sort of transitions and players taking clubs from one sort of level to another. His spell at Napoli was arguably his magnum opus and certainly in club football. Did you notice a sort of figurative hole in Italian football 
after he'd left and what was the aftermath at Napoli both short term and sort of in a longer term I guess to the current day Napoli basically went um they'd obviously won these two titles against all the odds and Maradona at its peak we we actually had a tape of archive which we sometimes we sometimes use clips from for Maradona and some of his goals were just ridiculous I mean one-on-ones where he wouldn't try and slot it past keeper he'd literally lob it over him from the edge of the box and he just he he had this incredible incredible talent he was in the perfect city where there was among the most passionate fans in Italy and he was he was loved he was a god there and it was a perfect match for Napoli and when he left Napoli had run into major financial problems which was going to beset them throughout the 90s and after Maradona left there their fortunes went downhill but manageable Marcello Lippi coached them in 93 for a season and he got them to Europe against all the odds they there was an iconic goal by Paolo Di Canio in that season against Milan which you should see if anyone gets a chance he turned Baresi inside out I think about twice before scoring but what he did with that Napoli side was amazing and after that it was a slow decline Um, and in 97 they had a disastrous season where they won hardly any games and they ended up relegated and there were sort of iconic images they went they got relegated at Palmer and they had the the Neapolitan uh, Fabio Cannavaro in tears with some of the Napoli players after the game and they slowly worked their way back and they went down again, but it was a real slow decline from after Maradona left. There was major financial issues at the club and it was a slow, slow decline. Yes, well, Napoli were declining in the 90s. Um, Italian football was seeming to produce an endless conveyor belt of iconic kits. Uh, we had Fiorentina's violet Nintendo shirts, the yellow and blue stripes of Parma, and the classic Juventus kits to name but a few. In terms of design, use of sponsors and material, it feels like a significant and influential moment in the history of football kits. At that time, what was your initial impression of these strips and what was the consensus amongst football fans in Italy that you know of? I think when you look now at kits, um, you know, they've obviously they've got very traditional kits in Italy, the whole black and white of Juventus, the stripes, the blue and black stripes of Inter, the red and black stripes of Milan and they try to not veer away. They, they try to stay with tradition for a long, long time. Obviously, things change, and now Inter's shirt is very different. It's sort of um, very, the stripes are almost at angles. They look very, you see on a close up shot of one player that looks very different now. But the two kits, are, are, they basically, they're, they're real traditionists in Italy. And when clubs had their centenary years, they tended to wear these um, unique kits on and off during the season and Milan in 99 had a for their centenary they had a a very iconic kit which was obviously the red and black stripes but they were incredibly thin stripes and um, they were it was synonymous with their centenary that year Lazio the year they won the league in their centenary in 2000 they played all their games in white shirts they brought out this white kit which they wore every week and there was one other I was going to talk about um can't really remember who it was. Yeah, but, you know, that traditional kit, Sampdoria never veered away from their kit. You know, the blue and the stripes in the middle. And there was so few clubs that wanted to sort of go against tradition. It was it was a real sense of pride that they had in, in their kits. And I don't think they wanted it changed. 
certainly a rich period for iconography, I think. And the Galazzo years were fortunate enough to witness the breakthrough of several now legendary players, Zinazine Zidane at Juventus, obviously, Ronaldo at Inter Milan, the original. During a period in which countless world-class individuals graced Serie A, which one player left you the most starstruck? Well, um, I would think it would have to be Alessandro Del Piero because his story was was unique. I mean, he came through the youth team. He was sent on loan to Padova, I think. And then he came back. And in the 94-95 season, he came of age. He scored a just most spectacular volley against Fiorentina, which almost launched his career. And it was a very iconic game. Juventus came from 2-0 down to win 3-2. They go on to win the title. And then at the end of the season, Roberto Baggio left uh, Juventus to go to Milan. And they saw Del Piero as the heir apparent and they wanted, they saw him as the future. Baggio was offered an extended contract on reduced salary. I think half his current salary. And he, um, they thought, you know what, Juventus had this policy throughout the 90s. They, they sold players. They sold Zidane. They sold Vieri. And they sold um, Baggio. But every year they came back stronger. And it was, um, it was um, part of their policy. But as for Del Piero, he sort of came of age during that time. And he became like the star of the team. And um, he won the title. Then later in the uh, 90s, he really was a symbol of the club. And he's, you know his talent was just extraordinary. Unfortunately, he didn't really provide it as often as he probably would have liked on an international stage but you know his his classic goal where he's on the left wing cut in and hit it with his right foot into the top corner was his most trademark goal and he um when they lost him through injury in the 98-99 season they it completely um derailed Juventus massively he they didn't actually score for five consecutive games after that injury and he was irreplaceable on that side and they they ended up finishing in their lowest league position in almost 10 years because he was he was irreplaceable. He was like like Ronaldo now to some degree. That's how crucial he was to them. Fascinating to hear, Jonathan, because as Rudy said, Serie A in the, the 90s was happening just as we were all about to come into consciousness or had come into consciousness. Most of us were born in the mid-90s, um, so it really is interesting to hear about it from yourself. Roberto Mancini has enjoyed recent success as manager of the Italian national team. Listeners will also, of course, remember the Manchester City side, coached by Mancini, of course, winning the Premier League title on the final day of the 2011-2012 season, thanks to Sergio Aguero's memorable late winner. But Mancini also enjoyed considerable success as a player in the 1990s, winning several Coppa Italias with Sampdoria and latterly Lazio. He was also named Serie A Footballer of the Year in 1997. And I've heard you speaking about Mancini the player before. How would you compare Mancini the player to Mancini the manager? I would say Mancini the manager is a lot, a lot calmer. As a player, his ability was incredible. He was blessed with the most astonishing ability. Just technically perfect and superb finisher. And he, he symbolised that Sampdoria team. Winning the um, winning the league and then going to the Champions League final, and he was a maverick though. He um, he had so much talent, but he was 
he would get into arguments with referees. He, it, it would be he'd lost, he'd lose interest in the match, and then he score from twenty yards or something. Hit, hit the ball into the top corner. He, he'd be on the periphery of the game. Then he'd do something remarkable, and it would be all about him. There was one goal, um, actually, which you guys should check out if you haven't seen it. Um, Lazio played Parma away in 1999. Uh, they won 3-1 at Parma, and Mancini scored a back heel. I don't know whether you've seen it. Mihailovic swung in a corner. Mancini wasn't even looking at the goal. He was looking far into the pitch, and as the ball came over, he just back heeled it straight in direct from a corner. I think Zola scored a goal that's similar later on for Chelsea, but he was, he was, his talent was outrageous, and he... One of the things, one of the um, sort of iconic seasons that Mancini had was when he had Vincenzo Montella play alongside him up front for Sampdoria. He came from Genoa across the city and it, it was very much the master and his apprentice. He, they were an incredible combination that season. And they just, um, this young kid who became an absolute star, a title winner with Roma, will say that he learned so much of, of Mancini because he was a legend. But they were, their energy, their synergy together, they were just a perfect match up front and they traumatised defences that year in 96 and 97. I have an excellent Roberto Mancini story and we do have a wee bit of time, so I'm going to tell it. Now, it was the summer of 2012. Barlow, I think you've heard this story um, a couple of times, so I do apologise, but it was the summer of 2012, just months, mere months after that Aguero moment at the Etihad, and I was holidaying in Seafeld in Austria with my family, you know, this really quaint, tranquil little village, um, absolutely gorgeous, and when we arrived, we, we saw these banners saying Manchester City training camp, and part of me was like, really excited but I think my mum was more like how on earth have we managed to pick this spot we're trying to get away no football for a while and we've come to the one place that Manchester City have chosen for their pre-season training camp so we were walking along just past the kind of the main square and I turn around and I see these two figures coming it's Platt and Mancini and, and I said and I, I was only what what age would I have been, what, 16, 17 at the time? Still fairly young, still well and truly capable of becoming starstruck. And I start, that's, that's Roberto Mancini. My mum's trying to calm me down. So we, we stop and then Roberto Mancini walks up to us. And I'm like trying to get my breath out. Like, because bearing in mind that literally months earlier, he'd been at the epicenter of one of the greatest moments in football ever, you could argue. And... Um, yeah, so we spoke to Mancini. I got a photo. We actually tweeted it not too long ago, asking who was more uh, starstruck, Mancini or Madden. I think it was probably the latter, but fantastic story. Uh, it wasn't too chatty with Roberto, but um, I think he was probably just thinking, who is this wee Scottish guy that's um, just giving me grief? Probably couldn't, couldn't get away from me quick enough. But I did stop for a photograph, and uh, it was a wonderful memory. Um, so Roberto Mancini, the player, Roberto Mancini, the manager, iconic and enigmatic, you could say. Moving on, we often think of James Richardson as one of the finest broadcasters of his generation. He's arguably the king of the footballing podcast, you could say, these days. However, his role as presenter of Gazeta Football Italia initially came about by accident rather than design. Paul Gascoigne had been the intended host, but... 
after he failed to show up for filming on more than one occasion, the now flamboyantly bearded Jimbo stepped in. The rest, as they say, is history. Gaza did, however, continue to be the subject of many interviews and sketches as the show went on. But just what was it like to work with Gaza and James Richardson? And what would be your favourite Jimbo and Gaza stories? Right, I've made note of a few stories, actually, which I'm sure you're going to enjoy. I never actually, I never met Gaza because James was based in Italy. And he would do all the features and film all the links and he would then play it out on a Thursday night for the, for the show to be edited. So everything was done in Italy and he was there on his own with his crew. So we, I never really had the opportunity to go out to meet Gaza, but it would have been, um, it would have been nothing if not entertaining was, I'm sure you can remember, remember from his Rangers days. It was never dull. Anyway, so I had some stories. I tried to make notes of some stories and just their links. And Gaza was, as you can imagine, always um, game for a laugh, whatever. He, he was just, you know, he, he, he didn't really care about his image. He just, he was just wanted to have fun. You know, he was at that time in his life where he didn't take himself too seriously and he'd do whatever James asked him to do, really. They just work so well together. Anyway, so there's a few stories. So they do these links every now and then and there'd be some sort of uh, location or wherever. And um, one show they were, it was like they were sharing a house or they were in the same house. And and James was saying, oh, coming up, we've got highlights of uh, Roma against Bari. But um, in the meantime, blah, blah, blah. So you come off, come off the game highlights, come back in vision. He said, um, I said, James is standing outside the bathroom. He says, Gazza, your, your bath's, um, your bath's ready. You better go in there. And he, Gazza walks past with like armbands, snorkel, flippers, the lot you can imagine, just waltzing into the bathroom. <laughs> it, it was just that kind of stuff. It was just, just mad. Just so many stories. Gazza just wanted to be part of the fun. They got him doing um, some links out of a Easter egg once. We, obviously the Easter special. So we had this, massive chocolate egg I mean massive and Gazza would come out he'd have his head in at the top of the thing he'd come out ah right what's going up next like and um chocolate all over his face um and just he didn't care there was another link where they came came off the titles Gazza and James at the top of the show lights are out so it's like um so James like turn that light on and um you can't see anything. And then the light comes on and obviously Gazza with the weight issues, he's tucking into a Mars bar and the whole secret, he's on this secret. I think your secret's out now, Paul. And he's like eating a Mars bar. And, but he knew that the people talking about his problems off the field and he just, he just went with it. He didn't care. There was another, <laughs> there was one more sketch um, where we were doing a chat with Gazza and Gazza was sitting in a chair and all this food in foil trays was being passed along to him. And he was taking a bite of everything. He says, oh, I love the fruit stuff. So he'd eat an apple, have a bite of an apple. Then some, how can you not like chips? How can you not like bread? How can you not like ice cream? I've got to have ice cream. Come on. He knew what he should be eating, what he shouldn't be eating, because sports science back then was a major thing in Italy. And in England, it wasn't so much then, it, and players were—they knew exactly what they should eat, what they shouldn't eat, and it's like it, it's like it is now in England. It's it's all sports science, and they think weight is a huge issue, and it 
they couldn't believe they couldn't believe the shape he come back in after the summer after the summer break. Just a couple more stories, two of which you may have heard, but I'll, I'll throw them in anyway. Um, we filmed Gaza at training once, and he was just all sorts of pranks he'd be up to. I mean, you cannot imagine. And he, we filmed him letting Aaron Vinter's tires down. He was a teammate of the club. So you can hear the hissing of, of the air coming out of the tire. <laughs> at the end of the, of the feature, all you could see was Aaron Vinter coming back to his you know, Lamborghini, whatever it was, with a flat tire and a look of amusement. Like, what, what has Gaza done to my car? Why, why have you done that? And, you know, and the other story is, is uh, Pierluigi Casaraghi's story he told when Zenex Eman was the coach who was, I don't know what you know about him, but he was a massive disciplinarian. He was the worst coach Gaza could have had because they were, he, he was, wouldn't take any nonsense from anyone. And so apparently he was rather attached to a certain whistle he had at training and he, he took his whistle wherever he went. It was, you know, one of his prized possessions. Anyway, so obviously Gaza nicked it before training and um, he found a goose by the training ground. So he gets the whistle, puts it around the neck of the goose, walks back to training. And as they, you know, they're planning their drills for a big game, whoever they're playing, it's all very, you know, going through their tactics, all very organized, endless coaches on the training ground. This, this goose walks across with a whistle around its neck, right through their train, interrupting their training. And, but that was Paul. He, he was loving it. He, 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 he loved being there, but he loved the relationship he had with, with James was, was very special, very special indeed. Yeah, and of course, James has perhaps unsurprisingly gone on to have a brilliant career, brilliant at what he does. And one of the reasons uh, that we actually started this podcast, listening to the Totally Football Show, kind of inspired the three of us. So there we go. Barlow, you wanted to add something, didn't you? Yeah, I think it's just interesting. We we obviously mentioned Maradona earlier, and I think everyone accepted his sort of flawed character and the humanity of Maradona. And I think that's something we also saw on Gaza. And obviously, you've given us some brilliant, hilarious stories there. But I missed one out. There's one I wanted to tell you. We've got time. Right. Yeah, so yeah. basically, Gaza scored a goal against Cagliari. He scored a free kick from by the touchline. They won the game easily. And Gaza's goal was, the, you know, the icing on the cake, the usual. And then he did a sort of Chris, Bank, Chris Eubank-style celebration. Anyway, so the following week, we got Gaza to recreate his goal for his little feature on the show every week. And Dino's off as the coach, and he, he had no personality whatsoever. He was just like, his lips barely moved when he spoke. And Paul thought it'd be a great idea if he could reenact his goal. And he had this, it was on this little subutio or table football pitch or whatever it was. And the, he thought he'd put a dinosaur on the sidelines to be Dino. And it was like a kid's toy dinosaur. So he's going to go, and what I did, I did this, and I did that, and I saw the keeper. I saw his, he's right there, and I know if I can curl it round him, go in the top corner. Just, and when I scored the goal and I celebrated, I asked Dino, was he happy? And then all you can see is him squeezing the dinosaur going, and the dinosaur making a very loud noise. Dino was happy. Brilliant. I think that's a good point. Paul, did you want to add something more? I'm just conscious of the time. Just, just quickly, I'll just finish off that point. about. I think that whatever we have gained in professionalism and perhaps we see 
we get to see our the best players in the world more regularly at a higher level. I do wonder if some of the character and the sort of humanity is something we've lost over the last 20, 30 years. And certainly you, you would never see anything like Maradona or Gaza these days. It just, it wouldn't fly. Managers wouldn't have it. Neither would the press, I think. And, uh, it is a great shame that you don't get those kind of stories or those kind of characters, or at least that we don't see those kind of characters anymore. I think players are told they're obviously media trained a lot more now than they were Absolutely. and they're surrounded by agents by they're surrounded by press all these high profile players are surrounded by press officers all these clubs so the days of when we go to a club and see if we can get a word with whoever and come out quickly it's just um those days are long gone we actually just to give you a, a quick example of of um how things have changed once we were doing an italian national piece outside the Italian training ground and Roberto Badger comes out and James grabs him, does an opening link and then does a five minute interview with him. Literally no, no meet, no um, press people, no agent, just grabbed him and then got a five minute interview out of him and an opening link. It was just fantastic. That's what it was. Mad times. Okay. Well, we'll wrap things up there. We're running out of time on the Zoom link, but do go and purchase Golazzo, the football Italia years on Amazon, less than a tenner. Perfect Christmas present. Thank you for coming on, Jonathan, for giving up your time. We'll let you go and enjoy your evening. Thank you. Jonathan has left for the evening. It was fantastic to hear from him there. Hopefully you, the listener, enjoyed hearing all about that iconic period and not just Italian football history, but football history. Generally, the plan is for us to look at La Liga and Liga Nosh in Portugal shortly. We won't have time this episode to look at French football or German football, but fear not, listener, because in our next episode we will be looking in more detail at contemporary Italian football. And I'm also planning a feature of sorts to talk about Nico Kovac and talk about why he failed ultimately at Bayern Munich and why he's doing relatively well at Monaco and whether he can sustain the success he's currently enjoying in the Principality. But you've got all of that to look forward to in two weeks' time. We'll turn our attention now to La Liga. First in the table and third in the table went head-to-head in Spain on Sunday night as high-flying Real Sociedad took on Villarreal. Neither of these teams would surely have imagined that they would find themselves in such lofty positions after 11 match days. What happened in Sunday's game, Barlow? And could either of those teams genuinely challenge for the title in the long run? One apiece was the result, Ali. It was two penalties, Gerard Moreno and Mikel Noria Thabal, two of arguably La Liga's best players this season. And it was a good game. There was bits of good football from both teams. You saw a spell in the first half where Real Sociedad came back into the game after being 1-0 down. They controlled it. They sort of got their foot on the ball. And that's one of the virtues of this Real Sociedad is they are so good to watch when they get the, get their foot on the ball, when they start moving. They have Oyarzabal, Silva was injured for this game, but Yanuzai, they've got some real magic amongst their ranks. Baran and Shea I've mentioned before, I think, he's as well a young player to keep your eye on because he'll be, be big soon. Second half, Villarreal, I think, adjusted a few things. Unai Emery shifted a few sort of positions and Villarreal dominated from there. 
in the second half at points, really pinning Sociedad back. But the second half of your question there about whether either of these two teams could challenge for the title, I think this was the game you really wanted one of them to grab it, to make a statement in this match, to to go out, win this game and comfortably and sort of put down a marker for the title. Because there is no team in La Liga, save maybe Atletico Madrid, who are in good form, who aren't conceding very many goals at all, that's looking like a a really confident title challenger, Real Madrid, Barcelona, they're obviously having huge struggles at the moment, which we'll touch on next week, I'm sure. But yeah, I'm not going to lie, I was left a little bit disappointed by this because I, I thought that this was a chance for either Aguasil or Emery to lay down a marker, and even if they don't end up winning the title, to either stick around until sort of at least January, February, March, or at the very least make a claim for that fourth Champions League spot afterwards after Real Madrid, Barcelona and Atleti, who probably will end up there despite their poor form, the the big two anyway. But yeah, a little disappointed, but two teams that you should definitely keep on watching in La Liga because they've got some of the best players in La Liga, but some of the most fun, I think. Moreno especially, he's just magical at the minute. He mm-hmm. he links attack together, he scores goals, he, he can do it all for a player that... I think maybe three, four years ago, nobody would have really thought about as becoming a star. Nobody, I don't think anybody thought that he had that talent within him, but fair play to him. So plenty, plenty to, to ruminate on, Ali, but a little bit disappointed by that one. Yeah, obviously, um, losing David Silva for any team would be quite difficult. But what, or rather, how impactful will the loss of David Silva be for Sociedad? He, he was only out for, for about a week or so. I think he was back in the lineup for the Europa okay. League tie to, tonight. But I think I've seen a few tweets about sort of the David Silva effect. Real Sociedad top of the table after 11 match days or something. And is it sensationalism? Be, sensationalism, it, perhaps? It is. And it's, it's I'm not going to lie, it's that Premier League arrogance that I think yep. many followers of European football Mm-hmm. really despise because David Silva's come in and make no bones about it he's been excellent he's been okay. brilliant and part of their sort of run to the top of the table but oh yeah Thabal's arguably been better than him they've got mm-hmm. Alexander Isak who's coming into his own Yanazai doesn't even play that much but when he does play he's been absolute magic Mikel Marino as well in the Spain squad recently mm-hmm. he, he will either be at a big club or in the Premier League very soon because he's I, for my money, he's been the best midfielder in Spain this season. Totally agree with what you're saying about that Premier League arrogance tunnel vision whereby only players who have ever played in the Premier League can be responsible for a team that would not normally be at the top of the table being at the top of the table. Well, thank you, Balo. We'll keep an eye on both of those teams as the season progresses and I'm sure you'll drop in with some further updates on them uh, as the months go on. We'll turn our attention now to... Portugal, Michael Jones, obviously a big fan of Portuguese football. The Portuguese connection is strong in this one. Michael, um, last season we looked at the notable impact Ruben Amorim was having at Portuguese side Braga in his fledgling months as a manager. Certain people questioned, however, whether he could maintain that early managerial momentum. Sporting Lisbon, nevertheless, were convinced by Amorim's ability and potential. They paid a staggering 10 million euros 
It's 10 million euros, you heard me correctly. But anyway, they paid a staggering 10 million euros to buy him out of his contract at Braga and bring him to the Estadio Jose Alvalade. Wonderful arena at that. It is still early days, of course, in the Liga Nos season with just eight games played. But to what extent does it look like that decision to bring in Amorim for big money has paid off? It looks like it's really going to pay Oh, it really is paying off at the moment. Eight games gone, Sporting Lisbon have won seven and drawn one, sit at the top of the league with a four-point gap. But yeah, I've been keeping a keen eye on Sporting Lisbon this season. And I think when you, ourselves, you know, as the podcast, we were really keen on Amarim's progress last season. And it was also quite big news. It was just before lockdown when Sporting Lisbon agreed to pay that money. And he had this really excellent unbeaten record in Portuguese football, beating the big boys with Braga. And then Sporting Lisbon, it was going quite well. He certainly improved the team because they were all over the place. And there were good signs going into the end of the season. But then they did suffer defeats to Porto and Benfica in the last three game weeks, which was just maybe a bit of a reality check. But I think over the course of the summer, that positive vibe around the team was really starting to become slightly clouded because essentially what started to happen was that they started you know normally when you think a new manager's coming in you've got your core of players that you may want to build around there was actually the transfer business was quite worrying at the beginning because you had Acuna who went to La Liga you had Bataglia who also went to La Liga Vendel probably the star of that team went to St. Petersburg for almost 20 million so there was like quite a few key departures, really. And maybe that new manager buzz people were fearing would bounce off in his first full season as manager. However, it really hasn't. And, you know, what he's actually done really well is the recruitment's been brilliant. They've not played any of the big teams yet, but they've been, they've been really good. And Pedro, a player who I always talk about is Pedro Gonçalves. Um, who I think is the biggest mistake Wolves ever made since Nuno's been in charge because we got rid of him on the free and he's been a revelation in Portugal since. They signed him for €5 million Euros and he's been phenomenal. He's probably been their player of the season. Other good business is Palinha, a midfielder who was owned by Sporting Lisbon but was on loan at Braga last season. He's been really good with none other than João Mario, who I saw at Inter years ago and his career has really been stop-start with spells at Locomotive Moscow and West Ham in between and it's not really hit the heights after he initially left Sporting after having a really good European part of that Euro 26 winning team. But he's come back, he's been effective. And they've got young players like Cabral, and Nuno Santos and Nuno Mendes. So there's ability all over the side. And it's a team, I think they've got so much potential this season. What I would say is that Porto have a really good manager in Sergio Conchichao. I think they'll make a second half of season rally like they did last season. And Benfica invested really heavily, as we, as you talked about, Ali, in a couple of episodes back in the last year or so. You know, Beigel, Everton, Darwin Nunes, to name a few. And they've, although some of the players are actually doing okay, some of them aren't. And you do think they'll start to get going in a, in a matter of weeks or months, especially under Jesus. But what we can appreciate this stage of the season is it looks like Sporting Lisbon have markedly improved and you could potentially have a free horse, a proper free horse title race in Portugal, which even if Sporting are to fall short, which looking at the squad on paper they may do, it would be a really good one to follow. And I would highly recommend people to follow the league more. You can watch the games, I know, on live score for free, which is something that's always pretty easy to do. And I guess the final thing I would say is just looking at the players who departed. This is a team that have basically just improved so much in the last few weeks by 
getting rid of all the star players. And I think there's always a bit of an interesting narrative when you're looking at changing around teams, you still tend to keep the best players or the ones with whose sell-on value might go up if you keep them for another season or two. But they've kind of gone against the rule back and torn it up. And I think it's paying dividends. And I'm really hoping under Ramarim, Sporting will be able to achieve something this season. Excellent. Michael, of course, Sporting has been not won the Liga Nos title since the early 2000s. They had all that trouble with supporter unrest, the training ground, and not too long ago, relatively recent history. So it is nice to see the side from Lisbon starting to turn things around after a few really difficult years. We'll follow that one closely. So I think we will wrap up the episode there. As I said, this episode was mainly in place to give Jonathan a platform to speak about his new book and for you, the listener, to perhaps take a trip down memory lane, a nostalgic trip down memory lane in terms of Italian football in the 1990s. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be able to relate to that period in time. Thank you as well just for your continued support. We got the Spotify wrapped stats through the other day we've got listeners in 21 countries and that's always growing so that really is fantastic we have some really exciting news details of which we will be able to share with you hopefully shortly it's a really exciting time at the podcast we started this uh, late january early february and i think Paul and michael the two of you would agree with me when i say it has gone from strength to strength but it has gone to strength from strength mainly because of your support we are obviously putting in the work behind the scenes but we could do all of that and nobody could listen and it really wouldn't be worth our while to be honest even if we are just doing it for a hobby what drives us to make the podcast better what drives us to keep producing what is hopefully in your opinion high quality content is you the listener tuning in every week you the listener engaging with us on twitter it really is what makes it all so enjoyable so yeah please do keep supporting us. If you enjoy the content and you haven't already shared it with others, please do share it with two or three people. You know, they might not listen to it, but they might, and we might pick up some new loyal listeners along the way. So thank you. I just wanted to say that for all of your support. Guys, do we have anything else we would like to add? Michael, what are you going to do with the rest of your evening? It's just gone 10 or about to go 10 past nine. What have you got planned? Thursday night in a moment, so I'm just looking through all the scores for the Europa League to see which one's worth tuning in for, and Sociedad are actually losing at home. Tempted to give that one a watch, actually. A bit of an upset on the cards there. Yeah. Paolo, what have you got planned? Are you going to shave the beard, or is it staying? I quite like it. Very handsome. Not that you're handsome without the beard, of course. It's it's pretty cool outside, Ali. We, we had our first settled snow in Edinburgh for the, uh, for the year, so it yeah. might stay. I'm actually currently... I've just fired up the old uh, Sociedad Rijeka game, Michael, so I'll join you with that over there on that one. Could have a watch party of sorts, like people were doing in the early days of lockdown before they realised that it was a, an insufferable experience. Well, enjoy the game, lads. I think I'm going to tune out, maybe read the book. Yeah, I do enjoy. Turn the football off for a wee while. There are no games taking my fancy this evening. I'll catch up on them tomorrow night, perhaps. I'll read up on what happened, look into which formations were deployed, who impressed, who did not impress. But in the meantime, I will say goodbye to you both. We'll touch base very shortly. And 
I will say thank you to the listener. Thank you also to Jonathan, who joined us, who gave up his time. He's spoken to TalkSport recently. He's speaking to the Times newspaper um, in the next couple of days. He spoke on Chloe Bredesford's excellent podcast on Italian football as well. And he is or was a joy to speak to. So hopefully you enjoyed listening to his tales from the 90s. Thank you and goodbye.